We're going to dive into Jeremiah 29, everybody's favorite verses in 29, 11. All right, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. So that's, a, that's the one that's on every coffee cup and every graduation card. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that today, what that actually means. Um, but uh, we're going we're gonna to spend a little bit of time this morning uh, diving into this passage, I think for a good reason. Um, and uh, I've just entitled today's thing, Life on the Margins. Uh, the margins mean, you know, if you have the margins, the, the stuff that matters is in the middle uh, and it's really central. But the margins is sort of this, these, these edges out here. And uh, uh, Christians have forever been really on the margins of life and society and community. And, uh, and so we're going to talk about what that looks like and what that means, uh, particularly for the Israelites uh, in Jeremiah 29, but also for us as well. And we're going to find out why that matters to us to think about that, that God calls us to bear witness to him even as exiles uh, while we cling for and hope for res- restoration. So um, have you ever heard these words before? If you have kids and you've traveled, uh, are we there yet? You ever heard that before uh, in your life? Uh, I, I, uh, we we kind of had a joke. We lived in South Dakota for over 20 years, and we were about 10 hours from our home, uh, where our home, meaning where we grew up, my wife and I, and uh, we joked that from where we lived, we just lived off of Interstate 90 uh, outside of Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and, and you would go over the interstate, right, and you'd head. So when we headed south to Kansas to go home, the joke was that my wife would say, and the kids together in unison would say to me, just after crossing the interstate, which was like a mile and a half from my house, are we there yet? Like, that's when it would begin, is like an hour and a half into the trip, and uh, <clears throat> Christy loves to travel far in cars, and, um, and so, so it was kind of this joke, right? Are we there yet? Um, is sort of the, the you know, interestingly, uh, that question uh, you know, sort of how long, is, are we there yet? How long is it going to be? Um, you know, are we, uh, when's the next stop? Um, how long is this going to keep going on? Is a question that's actually ans- asked in the Bible over and over and over again. Um, many times the people of God were crying out and saying to God, how long? You know, are we here, how long will it be? Are we there yet? Is this, when is this going to actually happen? When will this take place? There's, there was this constant longing, and, and I could just go through a whole list, but I'll list a few, like Psalm 74. The, it, it, this is a, written into a worship psalm, but God, how long will it be? Uh, psalm 79 is another one. Psalm 80, Psalm 85, Psalm 89, Isaiah 611. Jeremiah has a, a passage in there too where he says, how long until we're restored? And we'll find out why that matters in just a moment. Um, even in Daniel 12, verse 6, the angels, the angels ask God, how long? Like, how long is this going to be? And they say, Lord, when, when is our day of deliverance? Like, when is that going to be? When are things going to be restored? When are things going to get back to good, right? And this is a question that gets asked over and over and over again. I love what one pastor said this way about Jeremiah 29. Don't worry, we're going to read the text in just a moment. Um, Jeremiah 29, he says this. It, Jeremiah 29 gives attention to, to those in exile, uh, the word exile means that you've been banished, you've been taken out of your homeland, all right? And, and, and the Israelites in this time in which Jeremiah was given this word from God to give to the people, 
They had been completely ripped out of their homeland, taken out of their home country, out of Jerusalem, hauled off into exile in Babylon, a place that was not familiar, a place that was not their home. And, and so this one pastor says it this way, he gives attention to those in exile, those who've been taken away, captured, kidnapped, deported from their homeland in Judah, and carried away to Babylon. They were exiled both geographically and they were displaced physically, right? So geographically, they were taken from their home and they were completely physically removed and displaced. But there's more to exile, he says, than geographical location. Exile, in fact, he says, is not primarily a geographical phenomenon, but a social, moral, and a cultural phenomenon. It's the loss of a structured, reliable world which gives meaning and cohesiveness uh, to life. It's the loss of a framework or a structure that has been treasured and trusted by a people. Many of us, and certainly the Israelites, can find ourselves in exile much, much, that's much more intense than simply being relocated to a place that's not familiar. Um, some of you in the military might know a little bit about that, being relocated to a place that's not familiar. But the reality is, is that the Israelites had been ripped out of what they knew. They had been ripped out of their homeland, out of everything that they knew, their culture, their, the values around them had changed. Everything was different. What they considered normal was gone. We've not heard anything about that in the last couple years, right? What is normal, right? We hear this all the time, right? And the reality is, is that normalcy is gone for them. What's normal is not going to be the same. And God is reminding them of this. And, and so they are in a significant, intense moment of their lives being completely upended. And what do they want to do just like you and I want to do? Their desire is to get back to the good old days. To go back to normal, right? right? None of us want a new normal, do we? We want to go back to what was normal, right? That's what we want. And, and the Israelites are no different. They're fighting to go back, like they're just like, all they can think about while they're in Babylon is how are we going to get back to what things were like in Jerusalem? That's what they wanted. That's what they longed for. That's, in fact, normal. But God's going to give them some instructions that's not going to sound all that great to them. But I think it's an important thing for us to think about. You see, the problem is, is that these exiles are there for a reason. Because when things were, quote, normal in the good old days, they became complacent. They, they became, in fact, they, they began to compromise. They got so comfortable with normal that they actually forgot about God. In fact, they turned their own beliefs and their own faith became so much a part of their, just the cultural way in which things happened uh, that, that it, didn't, it began to not look like godliness at all, even though they thought they were being faithful. It began to look more like what many today would call a cultural sort of religion, right? And not really faithfulness to God. And God, knowing what was absolutely good for them and best for them, God says he's not going to let them have anything less than what is absolutely ultimate, which is himself, and so God is disciplining Israel. They are in Babylon, not simply because Babylon's, the Babylonian army and Nebuchadnezzar was more powerful and came over and beat them in a war. 
But God's going to give them insight, and he's going to say, um, newsflash, no fake news there. He's saying, newsflash, I'm the one who put you here. I'm the one who brought you to Babylon. And here's what we're going to do for the next 70 years. <laughs> right? That's, what he's, that's what's happening in Babylon. Now, here's what I want to say before we read this, is that this whole idea of being in exile ironically, is actually the way the New Testament describes us. There's a lot of exile in the Old Testament. And we see it as the, the, un, the unfaithful Israel that just kept testing God and testing God, and they were taken into exile. But the reality is, in the New Testament, the New Testament, in a positive way, simply describes us as exiles, strangers, sojourners. That this, this place we live in is not our place. We're out of place. This is not the final destination. This is not our home. There's an ultimate home one day in the presence of God where everything will be right and everything will be good and everything will be exactly the way God intends for it to be. And, and this is not that place. This is not the place where we're supposed to, supposed to somehow feel at home in that sense um, because there's a better place coming. And so the theme in the New Testament is that we are exiles. We are in exile. That today, as I'm sharing about what God says to Jeremiah, I want you to consider that the big picture of that, looking forward to what it means to live where you and I live, is that we are exactly those people as well. And yet in Christ, not because, and it's not because somehow we've been in trouble with God. We simply live in a place that's not our home. And yet, I wonder sometimes in my own life and maybe in our lives is that we also can become comfortable and complacent. We also um, can begin to sort of just blend in, right, and not have any significance whatsoever. Um, and so, uh, ironically, I do want to mention this before we read the text, there were false prophets in this day. So in Jeremiah 29, and actually 23, 27, 28, and now 29, at the end of this passage, which we're not going to read all of that, God's, God's going to say some stuff to these people. And there were these false prophets, and the false prophets were saying stuff like, hey, don't, don't settle down, don't worry, we're going to be out of this really quick, right? This will be over before you know it, all will be good, like they were just proclaiming this wonderful good news, like, hey, we're just, this is a short stint. God's going to have us back in the motherland in no time, right? And so that's literally what they were saying. They were saying maybe two years tops, and we're all going to be back there. And in fact, down in Jeremiah 29, uh, when I read this, you'll hear, you'll hear what the false prophets were saying, and God's going to say, be careful. So in other words, there was fake news back then, right? Just like there is today, but here's the warning, you may think that, that it's all those people that believe the fake news. This is spoken to God's people. And in fact, in 1 Timothy, Timothy, Paul tells Timothy that there's going to come a time when people will gather around themselves a group of teachers who will say to them what their itching ears want to hear, right? And he's talking to God's people. I think it's easy for us to feel arrogantly that somehow fake news is something out there that other people believe in. I'm unhappy to tell you, I'd be happy to it's us. We buy into these false messages as well. We listen to crazy stuff out there and believe it instead of truly listening to God as well, right? And in fact, if we don't think so, if we think that we're above that, 
then I think we're in trouble. I think our arrogance will cause us to be just like the Israelites when Jesus came the first time. They had it all figured out militarily, economically, politically. They knew exactly what the Messiah was going to be like, and they missed it entirely because they, they, they took the Scriptures and applied it into their culture versus hearing what God actually was saying. Right? So be careful about who we think is deceived in the world. It could be us. We need to discern before God what God wants from us. And this is what this whole little passage is about. God's going to say, I want you to listen to me. Hear me clearly. Don't listen to them. Hear what I have to say to you in exile. Here's what I want you to do in the next 70 to 90 years. All right? With that, let's stand and let's open up to Jeremiah 29. We stand at the reading of God's word uh, because it's God's word. Again, we want to hear from God, not just what I have to say about it, but I want us to discern together what God has to say uh, to us today. Jeremiah 29, verse 1, he says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of, of the exiles and to the priests and to the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from, from Jerusalem. I love that, by the way. Like, like let's get everybody in. Even the metal workers were taken away, just so you know. It's good. It's good detail for us. <clears throat> now I forgot where I was at. Sorry. Thank you. The letter was sent by... My eyes can't see. My wife would tell me. Uh, the letter was sent by the hand of Elasa the son of Shaphan, and, and Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, and with whom, I can't even say these words, and Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and it said this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not, uh, uh, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie, and they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord." Plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Let me pray. Lord, would you encourage us with these words? Would you cause us to hear 
your word to your people back then? And would we understand even now how this encourages and strengthens us and gives us instruction now on how to live life on the margins? And Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. We saw in that passage that the false prophets were saying, we're just going to be here a little while. Don't believe them. I did not send them. And, he says, and then he says, here's what's actually going to happen. You're going to be here for 70 to 90 years. I know it says 70 there. All, all told, when it's all said and done, it's about 90 before they actually get back to Jerusalem. And, and so he's saying to them, look, that's not true. Here's what's actually going to happen. Uh, and you also heard in there two times where he said, I, that, that you are in this place where I sent you. I have put you in this place. And you're going to be there for a long time. And so settle down. You know, get, get busy. Live life is what he's saying to them. And, and I, think, I think it's interesting to, to just note that when you consider the fact that they were in their own land, all their own customs and traditions uh, where the law of, of God's word would have been the thing that was driving the community and the society, they've been ripped out of that kind of a culture, right? Where they're the ones that are at the center of the culture. In Jerusalem, it was them. They're the ones that set the tone for how the community and the culture would go. They're, they were the culture, right? This is what life was like. It was, it was, in essence, a, a, a theocracy, right? And, and now, all of a sudden, they've been ripped out of that. Now they are in Babylon, where Nebuchadnezzar is actually king, and he's actually God as well in that culture. And he's treated as such. This is why you remember uh, he actually made a, a statue of himself and had people bow down and worship. That wasn't unusual to their culture. He was a god that they were to worship, and they were commanded to worship. He was considered that, and he thought of himself in that way as well. So that everything that was familiar to them in a place where they worshipped God and the customs were set by Scripture and so forth, they were ripped out of that. They're in a place where nothing is familiar, nothing is common. They don't have a temple. They don't have a place, right? They're completely out of place. And now, the culture that they're in could care less about their God, could care less about their practices, could care less about accommodating their worship, you know, uh, rhythms, you know, their Sabbath days. Babylon did not care about their Sabbath day, didn't give them time off from work, right? Didn't, didn't make exceptions for this. There was none of that, right? You, I mean, just, just imagine, like, this is a big, big deal, right? Like, Nothing in Babylon was familiar, and the culture itself could care less about these people. They only hauled away, in fact, the people that they thought would be beneficial to their own culture. Workers, if you read the book of Daniel, there's a reason why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the keys of the story, and Daniel, because they were prominent, smart people that the, that the culture, that the people there, that the king thought would be very useful in his cabinet, Right? The rest of the people they didn't care about, right? They became slaves. And so it's a very, uh, very significant change for them. And so you can imagine in the culture in which they came from being the center of the culture to where now they're on the fringe of the culture, if you could even call it that, on the very serious outskirts of the culture, you can imagine how disconcerting their lives were, just like that. Let me suggest to you, that's exactly where you and I live it's where every Christian in this world lives. 
But let me also suggest to you that I think over the last 50, 60 years, I'm getting into something that's just my speculation, but over the last 50 to 60 years, we have thought that we were at the center of the culture. And when we think that we are the center of the culture, we think and act in certain ways, and we become complacent and comfortable assuming that the values, the things that we value, our neighbors value, assuming things. We assume a lot of things, which gets us into trouble, only to wake up one day and find out that nobody cares what we think, which is where you live now. Like the church, people don't care what we think as a church nowadays. Do you know that? That's getting less and less all the time. I know that's hard sometimes. I, I, I used to go to churches and I would teach these things and wrestle with these things. And people look at me like, totally surprised. What? And I'm, I'm kind of surprised going, oh, you actually think that, that they care about what you think? Really? They don't. They don't care about any of that stuff. This is where Israel's at. They're in a place where people do not care. And so God's going to say, so how do we live our lives in such a way as to beautifully bear witness to the goodness and the glory of God in a place where the dominant culture doesn't care about us, right? How do we do that? I think this is where it gets fun, right? So let me just give you six things that that God says to them, six things, some of which are very explicit and a couple of which are implicitly here and are actually elsewhere in Scripture, which we won't have time to go into because we are going to rush through these. So, you'll notice who this is all sent to, by the way. So, he, he gives us this list, and we could go through who, who is King Jeconiah. Uh, he's one of the descendants of King Josiah, uh, and he was, in, he was the last actual king of Judah that was hauled away. He was only king for like three months or something like that, and then he was taken away. And the only reason why he was king is because the two kings before him, not after Jeremiah or Josiah was a really good king, uh, and then the kings after that were terrible kings. And Jeconiah then became king, and he was king for about three months, and then hauled off into exile. And then Nebuchadnezzar set up his own king, which you saw in there another king, which is called King Zedekiah. That was Nebuchadnezzar's, you know, dude that he put in there just to be the king, uh, basically doing the bidding of the, of him. And so, so he sends this letter, um, this letter to all of these people. Uh, and, and he gives a little bit of history. I think it's beautiful, by the way, when the scripture gives tiny little details like the metal workers. Um, count that as a beautiful blessing. When people say sometimes that the Bible is like this fairy tale story that's just made up, you've never read a story that's been made up in which there's this kind of detail in it. Fairy tales don't read like this, right? This is a historical account of what actually happened, right? Fairy tales read in this wonderful flowing way. They don't talk about all the way down to the metal worker who got hauled off into exile, and they don't worry about the names, the specific names of kings, right? It gets very specific because these are markers for people who would read this about the actual historical accuracy of of this account. And so he says, so here's what God says to them. Uh, Point number one. In verse 4, he says, thus says the Lord of hosts. Again, he's saying, listen to what I have to say. This, thus says the Lord. This is what I want to say to my people who are in the, on the margins, living in exile. He says, the, the, the God of Nebuchadnezzar, or, yeah, the God of, I love this too, the God, this is so good, the God of Nebuchadnezzar. Isn't that a beautiful little statement? Nebuchadnezzar is not ultimate. He's not the ultimate king. 
right? He's saying, no, the God of Nebuchadnezzar, he's not only, he's not only uh, the, the Lord of hosts, that is of the angels, but he's also the God of gods. He's the king of kings, right? He is the king over all those who would claim some sort of kingship. He's saying, I'm the God of Nebuchadnezzar, and here's what I say to you who are in exile. He says, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So first point is simply this. If God's the one who sent them into exile, then they need to embrace that reality and get comfortable with it. God's the one who has put them there, and so embrace it. What are you going to do? Fight with God? Right? In some ways, you could say to them, like, what are you going to do? Like, you're going to, you can fight to get back home, but it's not going to work out, right? God's saying, I have put you in this place. Embrace this reality that God has done in your life. He has you there for a reason. So embrace life on the margins. Become, become good with that, right? Get our minds wrapped up. Embrace And when I say that, I'm saying embrace the reality of where you and I exist. Embrace the fact that we are not the center. We are on the fringe, and that changes how we think about how we love and care for our neighbors and the people around us. It changes how we think about ministry. Life on the margins is not simple. You can't assume things. You can't just say certain things that are from the Bible and assume that people understand what that means. Right? It's different. And then the second thing is simply to realize that God is at work in the margins. If God has put them there and he's telling them you're going to be here a long time, then that means that God himself is the one who's at work in Babylon. God's at work in Babylon. I think we need to come to grips with that, right? It's, it's not, we're not against our culture, right? We're for it. God has placed us here in the midst of this culture. He's at work here. God placed Israel in the midst of Babylon. God is at work in Babylon. He's the king over Nebuchadnezzar the king. He's at work. He's doing stuff. So embrace that reality. Come to grips with that. And, and then he's going to tell us, how do we live life? How do we actually bear witness to him in the, in the margins in Babylon? In fact, and the reason why I think this is an important point is because their number one goal was to get back to Jerusalem. God's saying, stop it. That's not the goal. There is a day where God's going to restore you, but that'll be his day. He's going to take care of that. He says, I'm going to come back and I'll visit you when that day comes. Right? That's what he said. I got that covered. I'm going to restore you to the places where you, the place where you were. But but your goal is not to fight to get back there. Your goal is to figure out how to live here. The same is true for us as Christians, right? We're not waiting to get back to a land. We're waiting for a God who's going to restore and create a new heaven and a new earth. We long for that day, right? But that day is in His hands, not ours. And in the meantime, what does Scripture say? Scripture says, will He find us faithful when He comes back? Let us be faithful with what he's given us here in Jerusalem or in Babylon, I mean, here in the margins. Let us be faithful with that. So verse 5, he's, is the, the third point is simply this, put down roots is what he's saying. <laughs> put down some roots. Um, look at verse 5, he says, build houses and live in them. I like that. Not saying like, hey, 
Be productive. Put down some roots. Get a house. Get an apartment. Right? Uh, you're here for a while. How do, you, how do you do well in this society? Build a house. Live in it. Live in a neighborhood. You know, be a neighbor. Uh, I, I love it. It's very simple. Very practical. Build houses. Live in them. And he says, plant gardens and eat their produce. Right? Now, that's a, in that culture, is a very big deal. It's less and less of a deal to us. But he's saying that's a way for you to say, look, look we're going to begin to be productive. We're going to provide for our families. We're going we're to do stuff with our hands. We're going to get to work. Like we're going we're gonna to improve the, the land around us. So we're going to make, make uh, you know, things grow so that we can live and we can share those things with other people. We're going to become a part of this society. We're going to build houses. We're going to live in them. We're going to plant gardens. We're going to make produce. And then he says, secondly, you're going to, or next he says, you take wives. In other words, do all the things you normally do. Take wives for yourselves. Give your children, your daughters, and, and, and he says, or take wives for your son. Give your daughters in marriage that they will bear sons and daughters. And I love this. He says, multiply there, do not decrease. Don't look at the culture around you and go, boy, this culture is too tough to bring kids into. I wouldn't dare do that. No, no, no. God's saying have bunches of them and infiltrate the culture. Right? Doesn't that sound interesting? It's the opposite of what we're saying in our day, right? But he's saying, no, have kids. Have kids in the midst of Babylon. Right? Have godly kids. Raise them up like arrows in a quiver, as Scripture says. Like, this is good for the society. around. Like, like be, be a part of it. Do those normal things. Uh, in verse 6, he's saying... Do not decrease, multiply, become plentiful, right? Um, this is kind of a theme all the way through the Bible. Like as we're supposed to multiply right from the very beginning. Multiply and fill the earth, right? Fill the earth with image bearers of God, people who represent God and, and flood the earth with his, with his glory, right? Representing God in every way. This is more of an implicit one, but I think verses 5, 6, and even 7 would say to us that, that we need to practice hospitality in that culture. Like if you're going to build houses and you're going to live in neighborhoods and you're going to plant gardens and you're going to eat them and you're going to get married and you're going to have children, then it, it would make sense that those are activities that are hospitable to the culture, right? You're engaging yourself in the culture. You're welcoming them and you're, you're engaging with them, right? Caring for them. I love what verse 7 even says. He says, but seek the welfare of the city. Like, look out for the good. You, you, we want our lives and the things that we do to be for the benefit of the city. We want to be a blessing to it, not a, not a, a thorn in its flesh. Right? And so, so he's saying, be, be good. Practice hospitality. Engage with the people around you. Be a good neighbor. Learn to be a normal neighbor. <laughs> Maybe I'll just let that stay there for a minute. <laughs> Just be a normal neighbor. Um, in the firehouse uh, here in Lacey, uh, they say to me, when it comes to chaplains, this is, chaplain, just, just don't get weird ones. Don't be weird. And I could give you all the reasons why they would say that, but, but it's really a wise thing. They're just saying, like, we just want people who really love people and care for people and really really genuine people, but just don't be weird. Don't be weird. Like sometimes like 
You could say that about being a neighbor, right? Just don't be a weird neighbor. Just be a good neighbor. Like, be, be, be loving and caring and, and uh, don't, don't be judging and, you know, uh, I, I do find it interesting in here that uh, there's nothing in here about them actually calling out the culture, right? Jesus himself never really called out the culture. He called out believers, Christian, religious people, actually, right? But the way in which we actually kind of challenge the culture is by engaging in it as, as godly people, like actually becoming a part of it, engaging in all aspects and being a part of it. And the way we do that is by being good citizens, right? In fact, that's, that's my fifth principle. It's like, just be a good citizen. And I know that sounds strange. I think sometimes we go, well, that just sounds like, I know somebody might say to me, that sounds really social gospel or sounds really not like, like don't you have to like, go and preach to people? Yes, you do. Um, but how does that work? It works first and foremost because they see something really awesome in your life. Are you first and foremost a person who truly represents love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? Are you a person who has that number one quality? I know Pastor Nick talked about a while, but the number one characteristic of a Christian is that we are to love is that true of you? If you have that, you will get lots of opportunities to actually preach. And when you do preach, when you do actually share, and what I mean by preaching, when you do actually share the tenets of the gospel, the story of the gospel, when you do share that redemptive story, it will be because that person will be ready to hear it, and they will want to hear it from you, and they will receive it from you typically in this culture where we live. Um, that's my experience anyway. Um, and, so, and so I think what he's saying here in verse 7 even, he says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. He reminds them again. See, God's at work in, the, in Babylon. He says, I've sent you there. Seek its welfare, all right? Seek its welfare. And he says, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. I love this. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Right? I, I love this. Like, he's like saying, do good. Seek the welfare of the city that you live in, the state and the country. Seek the welfare of this place. Lacey, Washington, seek its welfare. Pray that the city council, that the city governments, that, that all those organizations will do well and, in fact, help it to go well. Seek its welfare because if they do well, then we do well. Does that make sense? Simple enough. If... if our city government enacts good policies, then that makes our lives good, right? And if they enact bad policies, then things are not going to go well. And so we want to participate. We want to encourage. We want to seek its welfare. We want to pray. That's the sixth principle. Just pray that it will go well for them. Pray for your community. Pray for your city. Right? Uh, care about the, the actual prospering nature of our town right here and our state and our federal government. Pray for it, right? I, I think um, I've been confronted about this many times over the last years. Uh, we oftentimes see ourselves as at odds or like it's us versus them. But this is our community, if you see every person who's not in your church or in your circle as the enemy, it's very difficult to love people that you treat as an enemy. 
It's very difficult to actually care about the person who believes absolutely nothing that you believe. But if you look at that person, you think, what an idiot. And you do that, right? Just be honest. We look at people around us, and we go, so stupid. Are you kidding me? You watch the news, and you say those things, right? What would happen? What would happen if we saw them the way Jesus sees them? What would happen if we saw them when we met man? Jesus saw people. He says they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And it says he had compassion, right? He loved them. They were people made in the image of God just like you and me. I, th- I think that's a picture. Of we, we're supposed to not be at odds with our community. We are supposed to engage in it for its good. Coming alongside, being an encouraging part. Um, I'll, I'll be so bold as maybe an application of this is that instead of pulling out of the culture, which we've done over the last 20 years as Christians, maybe we need to re-engage. Maybe we need to go back. We, we complain about the city council. I don't see any of us on there. <laughs> right? We've thought, ah, it's so messed up, I'm just going to get out of it. And maybe God's saying, like he called the, you know, our brothers and sisters years ago in the Netherlands, to actually get engaged. Sit at the table. Have the conversations. And I will tell you, those conversations will be very uncomfortable. But it will be absolutely worth it. So I think the picture here is that God's saying to Israel, settle down, live life in Babylon, love your community, be a good citizen, pray for the people around you, pray for, for and, and see that he's at work in Babylon, just like we as exiles in this place that's not our home, that seems at odds with everything we think, we are to engage, be present, to love the world around us, to embrace the fact that God is in control, that, that he can be trusted, he knows what he's doing, and, and to be aware and fight against our own complacency, our own compromise. Like he's not calling us to compromise. He's not saying that at all to the Israelites, and he certainly is not saying that to us. But he's calling upon us uh, to love our neighbors, to care for our community, to fully engage, to represent him in this place, even at the expense of being extremely uncomfortable even at the, at the, at the cost of, of dealing with things that are so, what feels so hard to us. And yet, and yet God calls us to engage, to get involved, to love. Um, embrace the fact that God's placed you where you're at for a reason. I love Acts 17. In Acts 17, uh, Paul's talking, he says, uh, he says, God has placed us all at all these different places around the world. He says, God has placed us there so that people might feel their way towards God. I love that. Like, God has placed all of us in different places, wherever, you, wherever your sphere of influence is at work and at home and in the community, wherever you live and wherever some of you are going to go. God's put us there so that, so that people might feel their way towards him, that people might know him, right? That's why we're there. And so, and so the only way that happens is if we fully embrace the reality of where we are and we realize that God is at work in that place and he wants to do incredible things through us. And so I encourage us to pray for our community. How are you and I a blessing to this community? Do they see us as a pain in the neck or do they see us as loving partners who care deeply just like they do about the things in this community? Find the things we have in common with people and start there.
right? Embrace those things. So I think what God was saying to Israel back in, you know, in 597 B.C. is relevant to where we live right now. We're living in Babylon, right? Let's represent God well. Let's do this really well. And I know you hear this. I, I was thinking about this when I was giving this message. I'm always talking about these things, right? Isn't that right, Raymond? I'm always um, But I think I'm going to just talk about this until I die. <laughs> is that all right with you guys? I think these things matter. And I think these things are really huge. And I think our culture around sometimes sees us as against them instead of actually for them, wanting what's best for them, wanting God's best for them, right? Um, so let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us today. Thank you that you love us, that you, you care deeply for us, that you, that you in fact provide for us in Babylon, in, in, on the margins of life, out on the edge, on the fringe, that you have given us all that we need to represent you well. I thank you for brothers like Serene who set an example of that, God, who, who literally goes and walks the streets and meets people and just loves them and cares for them. Lord, may we be those kind of people. May we be as, as, as uh, in Jesus in, in Luke 15 where he shares the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son where the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, they drew near to him. They wanted to be around him. And then he shared the reality of God's love with them. Lord, may our community, may they want to be around us. May they want us to be partners with them. May we seek uh, the welfare of our city and be good citizens in it for your sake, for your glory, that they might see you, that they might see, in fact, as Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they might see our good deeds, not for our own patting on the back, but they might see our good deeds and praise you, our Father, who is in heaven. May that be the reality. And we pray this in your name. Amen.